Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Uh, Janine, great to be able to, uh, to be with you and get your thoughts um, and, and views as relates to the uh, investment opportunities set out there. And, and for our viewers to, to understand, um, you run uh, a long short book. So you are part of the hedge fund world um, that, I, that I think that a lot of people actually really don't get access to and maybe are a bit afraid of or don't quite understand. So um, why don't we even just start there in terms of, you know, why obviously hedge funds have become more and more important to so many more investors over the past number years what, what does it offer versus long only fund well i think uh hedge funds in general offer something very different i mean obviously we've seen the proliferation of etfs and long only mutual funds and you want something in your portfolio that's not correlated or not necessarily the same kind of returns as the others so a hedge fund or a different differentiated product like a hedge fund offers that uh in your portfolio so that you have some diversification which i think you know if you think about it pension funds and high net worth individuals had access to this and with the introduction of liquid alts uh retail uh the retail crowd is now able to access this which we think is a good thing and and what it really means in terms of a hedge fund is that you can hedge away some of the risks you can go long you can go short maybe just kind of go through some of the things that you're able to do being a hedge fund Sure. So uh, we are sort of longer biased hedge funds. So we have a definitely a longer um, exposure to the equity markets. On the hedge side, we would use short positions to hedge out the risk if we think that we're too concentrated. For example, in one industry, we can go and maybe hedge out some of these short names that are more expensive that we think that our long names will outperform. Or we can use options. And I think of options as more like an insurance so that when you have a dislocation, and we've had many dislocations, as you've noticed, December 2018, March 2020. And it really helps the downside risk of a portfolio, which we think is really important in terms of preserving capital and growing that capital, which is so important to investors these days. And, um, and just to pick up on one of the points you, you made and to kind of get into a little bit uh, of your investment thoughts right now. Are there certain areas in the market right now that you think are dislocated? I mean, that, that's always the topic of the day in terms of uh, yeah. what's, what's overvalued. I think the market, there's so much going on right now. Um, you know, we're at, we're in an environment where we haven't experienced what we've seen, like debt levels, what's going to happen. We've never had this pandemic, it's, you know, in the markets. And so I think there's a lot of uncertainty of how this is going to unfold. There's obviously the, you know, the back and forth in terms of whether people should be in value stocks or growth stocks, whether inflation is temporary or permanent, and what the Fed's going to do, which is obviously, and, and no one knows. Like, I think this is a new, unprecedented environment, not to use an over, uh, overused term, but we're all watching for these and looking for these and trying to figure out where the best opportunities are in the market. 
Myself, uh, as you mentioned, I'm more of a bottoms up. Obviously, I pay attention to what's happening in macro. It does have an impact on industries we look at or maybe outlooks that we have in particular industries. But it always comes down to fundamentals for us in looking at what will drive how a company will grow, how a company will actually navigate through this uncertainty, how they will allocate their capital. And ultimately, that's how we make a decision to buy stocks and include it into our portfolio. Fair, fair point. Um, and, and from that point, that bottoms up perspective, are there certain themes um, that you strongly believe in right now? Yeah, there's there's a couple themes I'll talk about that we're in our portfolio right now. One of them has been financials, actually. And uh, in Q4, what we saw, and obviously there's a lot of noise with happening, we saw the yield curve steepening. Uh, so that sort of piqued my interest, you know, started to take a look at it. The other bit of news, which I think was more important uh, for the financials was the announcement of the vaccine. And so the concern when the pandemic first started was really what's going to happen to credit? Are we gonna have all these bank companies and businesses go bankrupt? Are consumers gonna have these bankruptcies? Are banks gonna have higher loan losses? And when that uncertainty happened in the spring of 2020, banks were very aggressive in terms of increasing their provisions in terms if credit went bad. Now with the vaccine news, I think that was really positive. We don't know how the rollout's going to be in terms of, and we've seen it's very uneven. Canada's in behind, although we're catching up. But ultimately, if you look at two to three years from now, businesses will reopen. Credit's not going to be as bad. And so that made us more bullish. And these, these stocks weren't trading very expensive. Plus the fact that they can't pay dividends or buy back stocks. And so capital was building on their balance sheet. So that was one thing that we have. We certainly still have it now. Uh, there's been a noise in terms of the yield and what's happening to these financials. But ultimately, I think that they're in a much better capital position today than they were in 2008. Uh, and they're going to get through this. The spread that they will earn in terms of their net interest margin might take a little bit of time given what's happening to the yield curve, but we're really comfortable in terms of credit. The other theme I, I'd like to talk about, Catherine, in terms of, you know, something that we've been bullish actually prior pandemic has been U.S. housing. We haven't seen housing starts to levels pre-great financial crisis in the last 10 years. And we just think that that's got to catch up somehow. And one of the ways we play that was actually through lumber stocks in Canada, which mm -hmm. obviously have gone through a major correction in the last couple of uh, weeks as you know, the commodity price lumber had gone from 1700 to probably less than a thousand. So, uh, but we think that the price going forward and who knows what the price is going to be. I can't predict that, but we think that the price is not going to be at the floor levels that we've seen historically because the demand is there and supply has shrunk since great financial crisis. So we're actually, I would say bullish. Uh, we think it's a secular uh, growth in U.S. Yeah. housing. It's going to take up a couple of years, but we do think that that's going to continue in the U.S. for uh, the next, call it three to five years. Wow. Um, so a couple of great ideas and, and themes to pick up on there, uh, Janine. And I, I want to actually pick up on the housing. I had a great housing sure. analyst on a couple of weeks ago who echoed what, what you're talking about as it relates to um, the prices were too uh, ahead of themselves on the lumber front. And that was before they pulled back. 
So he had a great call there, but he also thinks that there will be a, a very strong secular um, shift for for the um, uh, housing market uh, and that lumber prices will actually kind of hold above previous levels, exactly to your point. Um, and and that perhaps the way to play that is through building materials. Is that what you're looking at more so than the home builders? So we've actually played it mostly through the commodity lumber uh, and OSB, which actually is held in better than, than, than lumber. Um, so yes, mainly through those. Um, housing, it's interesting, we've, you know, if you listen to the conference calls of these home builders, they're actually holding back supply because they don't want to be overbuilding and then being caught in terms of gross margin squeeze if they're having to buy lumber at higher prices. So I think there's a whole back in terms, but the demand's strong. Uh, so I agree with your housing analyst that, you know, it is a secular trend. Are we going to go through ups and downs and little ball? Yes. But the, the reality is the housing stock in the U.S. has is, is got to improve. It's aged and there just hasn't been as many starts. And if you think of the demographics and who's buying it, these are starting families. These, there is a demand for housing. And so we, we, we think that's going to continue for the next mm -hmm. couple of years. Hmm. Um, in addition to lumber, what other areas might you look at um, as it relates to building materials? Or is that just the key one that you're going to kind of ride out? That's the key one. I mean, you could look at it things like mortgages, going back to the financials, and we've seen increases in terms of mortgage applications and so on. So you can play it that way. Other ways you can play it are derivative plays that will, you know, this is what I like about housing, actually. If you think about people buying houses, there's a multiplier effect in terms of the economy. So you think about what people are going to have to buy in order to, when they move into their homes, we like that. So you can play derivative plays like that. Okay. And, and on the lumber front then, what, what companies are you, are you looking at or do you own in, in terms of top, top holdings? Our top holdings right now are West Fraser and Interfor. Mm -hmm. uh, they are I, you know, in all my career, I don't think I've seen balance sheets as clean on these cyclical names, these two names as they are going to be. Uh, very little debt. Um, so uh, it's strong cash flows, obviously, given where commodity prices are. And will it moderate? Likely. You know, I agree. We're not going to see these commodity prices forever, but I am a firm believer that they're going to be at a higher level than what we've seen before in the past. Okay. Um, going back to the financials, it's interesting. I, I believe you said that you really just started to look at it towards the end of 2020. Is that right? And mm -hmm. I find that interesting in the sense that, I, you know, I feel like I've talked to so many uh, financial bulls through all these years, despite the, you know, ups and downs or, or not even quite being at a point where there would be a catalyst in terms of the, the, uh, the reversions on the um, uh, provisions for credit losses. And um, so your timing to me is interested, interesting. You almost kind of waited it out a little bit until there was almost a more, po a more obvious catalyst. Is that fair? I'd say that we always had a, a wait. I mean, I think having Canadian banks, I mean, if you look back in terms of historicals, they've always been great performers. But what we did in Q4 and what caught my attention is we actually doubled our weight. So we actually, we had it. We just got a lot more bullish in terms of the trading values. The fact that the we thought provisions were going to reverse, capital ratios were really strong. And so we we got bullish. And of course, Q4, they didn't do too much, but we've had a nice run in Q1. So I had yeah. to wait a little bit, but you know, they did finally catch up. And are you mostly looking at the Canadian or US financials? 
mostly Canadian we've added. Um, the U.S. seems to be, and I'm more familiar with Canadian, but the U.S. seems to be more uh, sensitive to net interest margins as opposed to Canada. So we, we like that part of the Canada and we thought the provisions and we think the dividends or increases are going to come. Got it. Um, from a thematic perspective as well, um, what, what are you thinking as it relates to the reopening trade? And, you know, day to day, it changes in terms of the market movements. Uh, you know, if we're, if we're staying at home, you know, this stay at home stocks work, if we're going back to work, those stocks work. And, it, you know, it's uh, uh, and the inverse relationship on the trading front happens. So wh where do you stand in terms of reopening uh, or not? So it is really hard, Catherine, because, the, you know, you get bifurcations on prices up and down in terms of what the sentiment of the day is. I think our approach has been to look at, you know, two to three years out and what's going to happen. In two to three years out, let's hope we're out of this. Let's hope that these businesses reopen. So I would say once the vaccine was announced, which it actually came sooner than what I expected. Before, you know, you listen to the experts, they thought it was going to take longer. So we actually got incrementally positive uh, once that news came out, increased our weight in industrials and increased our weight in some of these companies that would benefit from a reopening trade. Are we going to see volatility? Absolutely. But in the longer term, we try not to look at the day-to-day -day noise and we're still long these stocks. And when I think about, you know, the, the biggest alpha return perhaps one can get when we think about reopening, you got to look at the, the cruise lines, Vegas, airlines. It, but, but for many money managers, um, some of those areas aren't their appetite. Uh, many years ago, when I used to cover um, institutions on, on the sales desk in the United States at Deutsche Bank and Goldman, if, I mean, if I if I was ever if I ever called a PM, I mean, this is early two thousands on an airline stock, he'd hang up the phone because they didn't nobody invested in them then, really, right? Like it was a totally different risk mindset. Um, so, but but that's obviously changed dramatically, and there's been a lot of great companies and calls on that. So, where, where do you stand though on in that kind of area of the reopening? Um, they're definitely more torquey. Um, the issue I find with those companies, which will obviously benefit from the reopening trade, is that their capital structure today is very different from the capital structure pre-pandemic. And they've had to take on a lot of debt. So, you know, presumably when it comes back, obviously there's more torque in the equity if they have more debt, but the cap, it's, it's, it, I would say it's a less sound balance sheet uh, than what they were before. So mm -hmm. do you attribute the same kind of multiples to these companies now that they have a worse balance sheet? I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure, but will they benefit? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think in terms of airlines, and if you think about it, cruise, there's capacity that's come out of the market, which should be better, right? But of course, we're going to have noise. They're all going to come out. They're going to be competitive with pricing. We're going to see not so great margins, maybe at the beginning, and eventually it'll come out. But um, it's the balance sheets that bother me a little bit uh, yeah. more than the others. Yeah. Fair, fair point. You know, I remember, I think it was back in... Could have even been in March, maybe April, when we started to see, you know, the, the various cruise lines have massive debt offerings that were bought, bought. It, it was pretty unbelievable that there was that much of a belief. I mean, it was a great coupon, but anyway. <laughs> I, I think that's it. I think it was the coupon and at the time where yields were. It, it was an attractive investment. There's not much out there with that kind of coupon. So they were attractive. 
Yeah. Um, staying on the thematic side as well, we'll kind of run through different themes that are out there, perhaps get your thoughts on them and then kind of maybe drill into just a couple of stocks. Um, another theme, of course, digital assets, cryptocurrencies. It, it's different for people, I think, in your position to go down that path, but clearly more and more are um, in, in terms of having a little bit of it within their portfolios. But what do you guys do with that area these days? So I have not spent a lot of time on crypto. I don't own any crypto at the moment. I sort of kept the discipline in my years in terms of investing to invest in things I understand. And that is an area I feel that there's a lot of change and not quite understanding. So it, I'm a little reticent to put into something that I don't quite understand all the factors and things that could move it. Mm -hmm. and, um, and what about uh, electric vehicles? And because that's also another area that, you know, we've obviously seen a, huge, seen a huge move in it, even with GM's announcement yesterday. Um, but we really don't know how that's going to play out uh, in terms of demand and costs. Um, where do you, are you guys invested in any way that, in that area? We have other funds in our firm that have uh, more direct interest in those types of thematics. Am I a believer in the greening of the economy and changes in regulation, changes in behavior from corporate behavior? Absolutely. Uh, I actually am a believer in electric vehicles, but you know, there's a lot of bumps on the road, like the infrastructure, the fact that people can't drive from Toronto to their cottage without having to stop somewhere to be able to, and, and the time. So all that has to be resolved, mm -hmm. but, uh, and it'll take a period of time. It's not, you know, it's 10, whatever years. I do believe that we're heading into that direction, that we are going to make strides in terms of the infrastructure, the costs, uh, and, and just the volume and getting that unit cost down and leverage, operating, operating leverage, that will happen. Mm -hmm. uh, it'll just take time. Understood. Um, one other theme then that, you know, dovetails into that, of course, is um, your view on energy and, mm -hmm. and whether or not you like to invest in that area. Sometimes a lot of fundamental and, uh, portfolio managers don't necessarily go into the energy sector, that's for sure. Well, we have a modest exposure today, I would say. I think I agree with you. There's been a reticence from money managers, and maybe it's the past experience in terms of what we've seen in the last couple of years in terms of equities and what they've done. Certainly, we've seen the commodity come back. Um, just, I guess, a comment about the industry in general. Mm -hmm. It's very capital intensive. And uh, we tend to prefer companies that are more capital light and generate a lot of cash flows and not having to take that cash flow and reinvest it back in the business on the hopes that the commodity price will be at $70. Yeah. So, so we do have exposure because I think that, you know, it got too low and it looked, started looking attractive. Um, the other thing is back to your comment on electric vehicles. If you think about oil in the context of the breeding economy and electrical vehicles, are these stocks going to be trading at the same multiples we've seen in the past? Or are people going to wonder about the future and, and maybe accord them a, a lower multiple? I think, you know, where I think about retail stocks. You remember when e-commerce came out and yeah. all these people were questioning about the bricks and mortar? Well, the bricks and mortar have survived, but do they get valued the same way? Maybe not. So I think we're still in that transition mode in terms of how people look at it. But I agree with you. There's been a reluctance to go in. Yeah, it's been pretty amazing. Um, it, you know, I, I do talk to 
um, um, you know, en uh, energy money manager, Rafi Tomazian. <laughs> and full disclosure, we've invested with him and we've done very, very well. And, you know, I think it's a lonely, it's been a lonely world for him because there's not a lot of energy PMs around anymore. I mean, that's the <laughs> truth of the matter. But, but I guess lucky for him from a fund flow perspective and into the funds that he, that he runs. But, um, but I want to pick up on something you mentioned as well, uh, consumer discretionary. Um, that, you know, often there's some really interesting opportunities in that sector. Um, what do you think these days? Well, if you believe in the reopening of the economy, consumer discretionary are, are going to benefit. So like yeah. people, think about it here in Toronto, like the patio is just opened and it's hard to get a reservation. So just the discretion, the, the pent up demand, I think is going to be there. Um, and we do own some, like we own Aritzia and Dollarama uh, in the portfolio right now. I think they'll both benefit from the reopening of the economy and the pent up demand that has, you know, consumers have been staying at home, not able to go into shop. And I think that will come back once the we fully reopen. Mm -hmm. well, why don't we pick up on both of those names if we can, just from a fundamental perspective. Why Aritzia? So think about what you wore. For me, not you. You're not here. You're on TV all the time and you look great all the <laughs> yeah. time. But think about me and what I'm wearing at home. And I haven't dressed up. And I think once the economy reopens, there's going to be a desire for consumers to actually refresh their wardrobe. And you know what? They've done very well in the e-commerce strategy that they've been able to pivot. One interesting point that I picked up in the last quarter was the fact that they talked about they canceled their spring sales, meaning they're not going to take markdowns, meaning wow. their gross margins are going to be strong. So making that call today, which tells me that the demand that they're seeing is very strong, uh, and I think that there's a lot of white space that they can go into the U.S., um, you know, and they're, they've been pretty smart about it. They've been using social media uh, to get branding in the U.S., um, and I think that's been successful. Um, so that's one name we're positive on because we think that there's going to be some demand when the, if the economy reopens. And when you take a look at Dollarama, um, you know, those dollar stores have done so well for so long now. What, what's the, you know, what, what's the kind of the next iteration for them? Or, or is it just kind of a name you can continue to own and hold? Like what, would anybody who doesn't own it now want to step in at these levels? How do you look at it? Um, I, I still think it's an attractive stock at these levels. Um, the number of unit stores that they can actually open is still there. They're still white space. They still have the ability to open new stores in, in Canada. So I think that's positive. On top of that, they've been taking a little bit of a pause in terms of prices. So if you go in, I think, you know, the $150, $2, and they haven't really increased the prices lately. And I think there's an opportunity in the near term to introduce new product at a little bit higher price points. And if you think about what a price point, if you introduce a product at $4, $4.50, and what your average salary price in the store is $3, that's a big increase. So not only are you getting same store increases in one particular unit, you're getting increases on sales in terms of the whole system because you're adding new units. Mm -hmm. And they've been very methodical about the way they've done it. It's a great management team. We followed it since it's gone public. Um, I, I, they, their cap allocation has been phenomenal. And you know the US dollar were obviously watching. It could have an impact. And they've obviously have uh, exposure to any shipping costs 
So that's another thing that we're watching. But overall, they've managed through all the challenges and changes very well in the past. Mm-hmm. So we have full confidence with management. And the fact that you've been involved with the company since the IPO, I don't even know what year that was. How I can't long recall was either. Okay. <laughs> so, um, the, the, the question that I, I want to ask um, is, is more from a portfolio management construction aspect, which I think is really important for people to understand that that's also a big part of someone like your, uh, your job, um, which is to understand when to trim or why to trim. Some people do it because it's a uh, you know, certain percentage of their overall um, portfolio, there's too much concentration, but then there's other people who say, look, I'm not selling my winners. So how mm-hmm. do you approach the sell decision? Sell decisions is to your point, right-sizing it in terms of how it fits in terms of the portfolio. We do have a limit in terms of if a stock gets too big in the portfolio, just from a risk measurement, we do trim. Valuation is another thing. Sometimes you get overextended for whatever period of time and you can trim it and maybe buy it back. We do that occasionally, but we tend to hold things through the period for a longer period of time. But you're right. It's not just about stock picking. It's stock picking plus portfolio management. They're both equally important in terms of building a portfolio and getting the returns that you want. And, and quite different skill sets. I mean, obviously someone in your position has both. Uh, and, and sometimes I think for our viewers to understand as well, from a portfolio construction perspective, there's often a team looking at the overall decision um, or, or, or what have you, depending on the, on the firm and, and how it operates. But um, what, what do you think is key to think about when you're looking at your own portfolio? So, so someone at home, they've got their bank stocks, they've got CN Rail, they got whatever. What, what, what come, what's top of mind when you're looking um, at that? Diversification, obviously, is uh, the obvious answer to this. But when I look at the composition of the portfolio and sort of the different industries, I always think about where I could be wrong. Mm. And if I'm wrong, what other part of the portfolio is going to help me when I'm wrong or going to buffer the losses? And so that's the way I think about portfolio construction. Mm. So, you know, let's say I'm totally wrong on my interest rate calls and it goes the other way. Do I have something else in my portfolio that will buffer me in case I'm wrong? Uh, because we're very, at Wartow, we're actually really concerned about capital preservation and minimizing that downside risk. Mm-hmm. So I spend a lot of my day thinking about where I'm going to be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great way to wake up. <laughs> All right. Uh, you know, it's funny. Speaking of waking up, I when I first started in the business, um, it's actually Tony Errol from Burgundy Asset Management who founded it, who's why I got into the business, the finance business. Uh, he took me to a luncheon where Sir John Templeton was speaking. And I think um, the founder of, of Templeton Funds is everybody, you know, just to make sure everybody's on the same page. Um, and I think everybody in the room, this huge ballroom in Toronto thought he was going to give us the best, his top ideas. And, and it wasn't about that at all. It was his whole conversation was talking about how, how we're so fortunate and how we're so lucky to have been born, you know, in, in a nice era, et cetera, et cetera. And the one thing he said he did before he woke up every day and put his feet on the floor was, you know, to, to name, like, I think it was six things he was thankful for and had to be different every day. So anyway, just it's add that in. A good thing. Yeah. In COVID world, I think that's probably a good thing. If you think about how many things we should be thankful for, despite and what we see globally and what's happening in other parts of the world, we should be very thankful. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I appreciate the fact that you, you know, you, you in your day, you have to think about, okay, where could I be wrong? So just to close the loop on that. Um, so just to talk about a couple of um, stocks as well, because when I look at your top holdings, um, you do own some of the, maybe, I don't know if you still do, but some of the REITs and, and real estate plays. Um, yeah. Obviously, that's a big area of debate in terms of what do you want to own in real estate? What, what are your thoughts? Um, so going back to the interest rates, it's sort of like if, it's, if people think if interest rates rise too high, the rates are not going to do well. We don't necessarily agree with that as a global statement, right? Uh, REITs that can reprice sort of their uh, leases uh, and take advantage of pricing increases, I think will do well. But there's a couple of things I think that stand out. Uh, one is industrial. I'm sure you've had people come on and talk about how strong industrial is. And so the rents that they're getting is very strong. Uh, it's one of the areas that we're invested in. Um, and but what's I, a good play there? What's, what's a good play in industrial rates? Well, there's many. There's Summit, there's uh, Dundee Industrial, which is a name we all, we like. Um, and what, you know, what I, I like is you, you can hear real estate companies talk about what they're seeing in terms of rent. But then when you talk to your industrial companies, the people that are actually expanding their distribution centers, and you ask them what they're doing, and they're like, oh my god do you know how much it's costing me my rent just went up and that's just confirming evidence to us so we like that mm -hmm. i think multifamily is interesting as well i mean obviously they've been hit a little bit by immigration and students not being able to go to school eventually that will reopen eventually and they were experiencing very strong rent growth prior to the pandemic uh obviously that came off the table with the pandemic uh and there's always talk about government intervention in terms of what they would do for rent increases um but those assets are phenomenal assets and irreplaceable assets if you think about it so mm -hmm. we like those yeah and and shorter term leases that they can reprice so that's what we like and an example there would be uh kill would be one of them oh yeah uh, capri would be another one interrent is another one Okay. Um, where do you stand on Tricon? So we, Tricon is a phenomenal, uh, I think, uh, model. And when they came out public, they came out as a sort of an asset manager. They transitioned themselves as a single family um, uh, resident, uh, single family rental, mostly in the U.S. And, you know, ties into the theme in terms of the U.S. demand and, the rent increases, they're phenomenal operators. If you look at what they're operating, uh, kind of their margins are getting, they're quite high and quite competitive relative to the industry. The issue that people have in terms of this name is that they've been uh, coming to the market from a lot of equity issues. Uh, and it's a bit fatigued, I would say. I think some of the investors are a bit fatigued, but I think the fundamentals of the business are phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've um, interviewed the CEO, Gary, many, many times. I think it's a Really great business, an interesting business. Um, and people probably want to see the, the price appreciation a little bit more. Yeah. Than they have. <laughs> so yeah. That's uh, that's sometimes how, how it happens for a while. And patience, mm -hmm. patience. Um, I want to get your take as well um, with the waste companies. Um, it's an area I've, you know, I think I've been familiar with for so many years now. Um, are you guys still involved with waste connections? Yes, we are still shareholders of Waste Connections. I'd say the stock 
probably hasn't participated to the same extent the market is lately. Part of it is the reopening, like the reopening trade. And we actually think there is some reopening trade to this because what's happened is the residential has been really strong, but the commercial has come off. And as the economy reopens, we should see the volumes in the commercial come back. Uh, secondly, I think the pricing has been quite strong uh, that they've been able to push through. So that's been very good. Their Canadian operations obviously have been impacted by the closures, but the U.S. operations we can see are coming back. And, uh, you know, it's a prudent management team, lots of visibility in terms of their contracting and the revenue projections. So we still like it. And what's the valuation reflecting right now? Um, the value I would say is always been expensive relative to growth, <laughs> but I, my belief is I don't mind paying for high quality companies. I'd put dollar in that dollar in that camp dollar mm -hmm. probably trades on the higher end relative to the others in the group, but you're paying, you're getting a really high quality management team. Uh, so we don't mind paying up if it's a good quality company. Okay, uh, fair point. And, and I, I just want to get you, before we kind of wrap a little bit here, I do want to get your thoughts um, on what you mentioned earlier, which was kind of having a little bit of a buffer to the portfolio and thinking, you know, kind of where the risks are. And if one moves, what does it mean for, for the rest of the portfolio? Franco Nevada. Yeah. It's a gold streaming company. So I always think it's prudent to have a little exposure, just in back to oil, right? You want to have a little exposure. Uh, so Franco Nevada is our gold exposure. It's our only gold exposure right now. Uh, I like it because you will get um, exposure to gold prices going up, but you don't have it be, being a royalty company. You don't have the exposure to the costs. Um, so that's my way of watching what gold prices are. So owning Frank and Nevada almost keeps your eye on gold a little that's bit. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, what, what's, and what's that valuation reflecting? Because I think that there are people who, you know, maybe haven't participated in gold, might want to own not gold miners, but something like a, like a streaming company and getting, a, getting paid for that. Um, what, what does the valuation reflect? It's, it's expensive. There's no, it's always been expensive. It's a royalty company. Royalty companies pay very expensive, but uh, you're getting exposure without the, you know, political geographic risks, cost risks that go with gold mining companies and being a conservative kind of portfolio manager. That's the way we like our exposure. Got it. Um, and Janine, just to kind of close it out here, um, in terms of the macro picture, and again, we've talked a lot about the fundamentals bottom up, which I really appreciate. Um, what What is on your radar in, in terms of kind of what you're watching? Obviously, we had the Fed yesterday and, and interest rates, um, trying to figure out where that's going. And we started with the conversation by saying nobody necessarily really knows. The Fed probably doesn't know either. But, um, you know, for our viewers to kind of understand you know, what you're worried about maybe is, is a way to think about it. What, what would that be? Uh, there's two things that I'm watching quite carefully, I would say. One is obviously having interest rates. Um, and they'll move around, but I am paying attention because it's having a quite a big impact on the markets these days. The other thing that I monitor, and if you talk to like even financials, it's a thing that they monitor a lot, is employment levels. Mm. Uh, because, you know, as long as people are working and they're employed, they'll be able to pay their mortgage. They'll be able to go out and buy food the, and the economy will move. 
if the employment levels fall for whatever reason, uh, I think it's a signal that you have to pay attention to which sectors or which companies could be more vulnerable. So those are the two things that I watch particularly closely. Well, on that front, then, what was your view of the last Canadian jobs report? Uh, it's, I, it's, it's a little bit backward looking when you look at employment numbers. Like I like looking at other more forward looking indicators. I do think, you know, if you look at what's going on, a lot of companies are looking to hire. So I'm actually more bullish in terms hmm. of employment numbers going forward uh, than, you know, what we see sort of numbers come up. Okay. That's a fair point, particularly because the numbers are so delayed in Canada <laughs> yeah. and, and the revisions are so massive. That's right. <laughs> okay. So you're, you're basically saying you're listening to company managements and hearing what their hiring plans are. Yeah. If you look around, you see somebody signs with people putting stuff on the window. We're hiring. So um, the thing you have to watch with that in terms of job opportunities and matching the skill set. Uh, and obviously technology has been a big, a big part of that. So, you know, I think that's another thing that I watch. Okay. Janine, we will leave it there. It has been great speaking with you. I'm getting your insights and views. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you. That was great.